Well, we are again tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and tonight we're going to be uh, looking at verses 18 through 21, uh, excuse me, 18 through 25, 18 to 25. So uh, after you have found 1 Corinthians 1 in your Bible, let's stand together and uh, let's read it together. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we uh, just thank you for this encouraging passage tonight. And uh, Lord, we pray that we would have your wisdom that uh, we would not be seeking the wisdom of the world, but that we would know that your wisdom is far superior. And so, Lord, we pray that we would walk in your wisdom, that we would live according to your wisdom. And, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that every single day. And, Lord, once again tonight as we consider uh, the truth of your word, we ask that uh, you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to be illumined to your truth, and, Lord, we thank you again for this church body. We thank you for the fellowship that is so sweet. And we thank you for the service that we see, the willingness of people to serve. Lord, uh, we thank you for uh, the joy of being able to uh, gather together corporately and worship you and, and just to uh, uh, worship your name and to praise you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless again as we do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, turn with me in your Bible again to 1 Corinthians 1. And we read our text a few minutes ago, but tonight we are looking at the foolishness of God. This passage continues to deal with the problem of divisions in the church. But here we have a contrast between human wisdom and divine wisdom. It is really the contrast between the foolishness of men, which they think is wisdom, and the wisdom of God, which they think is foolish. It is a contrast between God's true wisdom and man's supposed wisdom, between God's supposed foolishness and man's true foolishness. And by the way, if you had to choose between the wisdom of men or the wisdom of God, which one would you choose? 
Now, we say we would choose the wisdom of God, but the truth of the matter is we often really choose the wisdom of men instead. How many people run to a psychologist instead of the Word of God? How many times do we turn to economic indicators instead of trusting God? We often turn to all kinds of experts on the family instead of patterning our homes after what God says to us in the Scriptures. We depend on the latest church growth techniques and methodologies instead of following God's instructions for the church. And the bottom line is that we have to constantly choose which way we will follow. And we have to determine that we're going to choose the wisdom of God over the wisdom of men. But someone might ask, what does this have to do with the problem of division in the church? Well, I'm going to ask you to be patient on that. And I believe that before we are finished tonight, it will become clear. We need to understand some background about Corinth that will help us with this. This issue was something specific to this city that Paul is bringing to light. And what I want to do tonight is to divide this up into two main sections. The first one is the inferiority of human wisdom. If you study the history of the ancient Greeks, you would have to say that they were in love with human wisdom. In the day in which Paul wrote this letter, there were as many as 50 distinct, identifiable philosophical parties or movements. And another way to say this is to say that there were nearly as many philosophies as there were philosophers. Everybody had a little different idea on the issues of life. And people began to line up behind their favorite philosophy and their favorite philosopher. And of course, they widely disagreed with one another. And they would often debate over which philosophy was best. And inevitably, many factions developed, each with its own leader and followers. So you see, it was really not that much unlike our world today. Without an absolute standard for truth, ideas of right and wrong, good and evil, and the way to live is merely based on human opinion. This is really no different from all the lobby groups that we see today in Washington, D.C. that are pushing their own agendas. Everything from LBGTQ uh, lobby to Save the Whales. And we have people who are seeking to gain power and influence. And all that effort is based on what they believe is the way to go. It is all based on human opinion. Well, in Corinth, the Christians had carried this kind of philosophical factionalism into the church. They simply could not get over their love for human wisdom 
just as they had difficulty letting go of the immoral lifestyle of Corinth. So what they ended up doing was adding the wisdom of men to the message of the gospel. And it's not that they denied the truth of the gospel, but they began adding some things to it from the wisdom of the culture around them. And the issue that we need to wrestle with tonight is the question of whether we as Christians should be doing this. Do we need to add to the gospel? Do we need the wisdom of other human disciplines or is the word of God enough? Is it, is it sufficient? One commentator wrote, Although it is true that men have recognized much that is true about life, a Christian has no need of human philosophy. Where it happens to be right, it will agree with the Scripture. And therefore, it is unnecessary. Where it is wrong, it will disagree with Scripture and is therefore misleading. It has nothing necessary or reliable to offer by nature, it is speculation based on man's limited and fallible insights and understanding. Do we really need human wisdom? And do we really need to add human wisdom to the gospel? Well, next to that quote, I think we ought to read Colossians 2.8, which says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. What Paul is trying to get Corinthian believers to see is that human reason and philosophy is not only unnecessary due to our having God's Word, but it is also divisive because it's based on human opinions. And the divisions arise because there's no divine standard. So it becomes one opinion versus another, and people line up under one philosophy or another based on their preference. And as I'm sure you know, our world is just the same today. We've made gods out of education and human speculation. Most talk shows, in fact, most news channels, are built on opinion after opinion. And as long as God's Word is rejected as the absolute authority, we will continue to remain adrift in a sea of relativism with all kinds of competing ideas and philosophies and opinions. Even Christians are turning to human wisdom instead of God's Word for values, meaning, guidance, and help. Many sermons today are like pop psychology lessons. Or we may add human wisdom to Scripture. We take popular philosophies of our day and we bring them into our interpretation of the Bible. Or we may try to baptize our human ideas and insights by 
quoting Scripture, usually out of context. And in this way, we make our own opinions sound like something biblical. These are all very dangerous trends that we must avoid. Sometimes we as Christians are more concerned about human opinion than we are about what the Bible says. We're more interested in reading the latest book by the latest expert than we are reading and studying the Word of God. Look with me at verse 17 for just a moment. The phrase, cleverness of speech there, literally means words of wisdom. And Paul was saying that he did not come to proclaim men's words, but God's word. And from verse 18 to the end of chapter 3, Paul is going to use the word Sophia, wisdom, 13 times. And his intent is to show that God's word is the only true wisdom and is the only wisdom that is reliable and is all the wisdom that we need. That's what we're going to see here in these last couple of chapters. And God's word is not only inerrant, it is also sufficient. All truth that God intends for us to have and all that we need is found in Scripture. It needs no addition of human wisdom, which, by the way, always falls short of and often contradicts or distorts his truth. But Scripture alone stands as totally reliable, sufficient, and complete. And that's what we're going to see at the end of chapter 1 and all the way to chapter 3. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, The whole drift toward modernism that has blighted the church of God and nearly destroyed its living gospel may be traced to an hour when men began to turn from revelation to philosophy. And of course, we have now moved on to postmodernism, and we've carried this even further. But Lloyd-Jones may be right on target when he says that it all began with the transition from divine revelation to human philosophy. The shift that occurred was a tremendous shift. Psychology is another form of human wisdom that frequently contradicts or is used to modify or enhance God's Word. It is not a true or exact science, but is basically philosophical. It is primarily built on people's opinions. Every form of psychology has a philosophical foundation that colors it and determines its methods and outcomes. And certain presuppositions are unavoidably tied to the conclusions. But the Bible makes it clear that the heart of all man's problems, mental, social, economic, and spiritual, are the result of sin. And a true understanding of sin is completely out of the psychologist's realm. In fact, 
psychology, in essence, redefines sin. Now, psychology can try to put a band-aid on the problem and try to make people feel better about their sin, but to somehow diffuse the guilt of people and what they are feeling, that is something that is only putting a band-aid on it. It's not really dealing with the sin itself. Only Christ can deal with our sin. And He can not only remove the guilt, He can take away the sin itself. Here's how Paul described man's effort to add to the wisdom of God in Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. That makes... The contrast even stronger. Not only is human wisdom far inferior to the truth of God, it can also distort God's truth and deceive people into believe, believing something that is not true. So we need to be careful that we are not exchanging the truth of God for the lie of human wisdom. But back in 1 Corinthians one, look at verse 18. Human wisdom, cleverness of speech, will always make God's wisdom, the cross, null and void. And we have to decide which one we're going to trust. And as long as it is used properly and wisely, medicine, of course, and other pure sciences can be of great value. But if we want the answers to what life is really all about, answers about things like where we came from and where we're going and why we're here, answers about what is right and what is wrong and how we should live our lives, there's only one place we should go, and that is to the truth of God as revealed in His Word. Even the pure sciences cannot answer the true questions of life. For example, even though we have made amazing advances in science and medicine, we still cannot even agree on when life actually begins or ends. We still can't agree on those things. But we don't have to give our opinion on that because God tells us in His Word. In regard to the most important issues of life, such things as human nature, sin, God, morality, and ethics, the spirit world, the future, in all these things, philosophy is bankrupt. But God's wisdom provides what we need. But I want us to turn to the other side for a moment. And look at the superiority of divine wisdom. The superiority of divine wisdom. Whenever man elevates his own wisdom, he automatically attempts to lower God's wisdom, which looks to him like foolishness because it conflicts with his own thinking. For example, the fact that God would take on human form be crucified or raised from the dead in order to provide for man's salvation is an idea far too simple, 
foolish and humbling for the natural man to accept. It is foolish to man's way of thinking because it allows no place for merit, human achievement, or pride. And that's why every religion in the world that is not based on what the Bible teaches about salvation has kind of uh, a work system of earning eternal life. Every single religion. But Ephesians 2, 8, 8 and uh, 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. That's the problem. Men want to be able to boast. Men want to be able to say, I have earned my own salvation, or at least I played a part in securing it. But the gospel of grace rules that out. And God's salvation is purely by grace apart from any human works. But going back to 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word for foolishness there is the word Moriah, from where we get our English word moron. That word speaks of utter foolishness. The preaching of the cross appears completely moronic to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved... It is the power of God. In fact, this verse highlights the fact that the Bible teaches there are really only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are in the process of being saved, and there are those who are in the process of perishing. And according to God's words, these are the only two kinds of people there are. And we have to determine what kind we will be. And the phrase, the word of the cross includes the entire gospel or God's total plan of redemption, which has the cross as its centerpiece. You see, folks, human wisdom cannot understand the cross. Even Jesus' own disciples could not understand it and accept it until after the resurrection. People today do not want to hear the message of the cross. To the natural man, it is offensive and unacceptable. But it is critical for us to understand that the wisdom of God, as demonstrated by the cross, is far superior than the wisdom of men. And because of that, Paul goes on to give five reasons why God's wisdom is superior to human reason. First of all, he deals with the permanence of God's wisdom. And we're going to look at these five reasons, the permanence of God's wisdom. Verse 19 is a quote from Isaiah 29:14, which prophesies that someday all men's philosophies and objections to the gospel will be swept away forever. It says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside There are many in this world who are filled with pride, thinking they are so smart. But the Bible says that one day all of that so-called wisdom will be counted as nothing. And when I 
read this verse, I don't know about you, but I think of Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Human wisdom is essentially bankrupt, but men think it is the right way. Someday it will be clear that it ultimately leads to eternal destruction. Verse 20 essentially says, where are all the smart people who have all the answers? I mean, look at it. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I mean, think about it. How much closer to world peace are we today than we were a century ago? Or even a millennium ago. How much closer are we to eliminating poverty, hunger, ignorance, crime, and immorality than we were even in Paul's day? As one author put it, we are more educated than our forefathers, but we are not more moral. We have more means of helping each other, but we are not less selfish. We have more means of communication, but we do not understand each other any better. We have more psychology, but more crime and violence than ever before. We have not changed except in finding more ways to express and excuse our human nature. Where have our great thinkers... Our philosophers, our sociologists, our psychologists, our economists, scientists, and statesmen, where have they brought us? Never before has mankind been so fearful of self-destruction than we are right now. And even with all the amazing advances in science and technology, the real problems have not been solved. You see, human wisdom really has no way to remove selfishness or to cure hatred or to eradicate prejudice or to eliminate sin. In contrast to that, the wisdom of God is permanent. The Bible says that heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord will abide forever. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away But my words shall not pass away. The wisdom of God is permanent. But there's a second reason why God's wisdom is superior. Notice in this text the power of God's wisdom. Look with me at verse 21. For since the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to no God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. With all their supposed wisdom, man has never been able to know God or to solve his real problem, which is sin. The religions of this world are merely man's feeble attempts to find God and eradicate the curse of sin. They are completely useless in accomplishing this. Even if man 
did acknowledge that sin is his real problem, which most would not acknowledge. But even if he did, he would have no way of dealing with sin. But God does deal with sin, and he does it through the gospel. He does it through the message preached. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He chose to use that which the world deems as moronic, as foolish, to save those who would simply believe the gospel as God's truth. And for those who will exchange their wisdom for His, God offers transformation, regeneration, new birth, and new life through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen, this foolishness is man's only hope. I mean, turn over to chapter 3 for just a moment. Turn to chapter 3 and notice what Paul says in uh, verses 18 to 23. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Now, we're going to see that in more detail when we get to it. But the gist of it is that the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God, while the true wisdom of God is seen as foolishness to the world. And yet, it is the proclamation of that foolishness That is man's only hope of eternal life. By the way, Paul is not not talking about foolish preaching here, of which there is more than enough. He's talking about preaching that is perceived by the world as being foolish. He's talking about the proclamation of the simple, unadorned, uncomplicated message of the cross that allows no place for man's wisdom or glory. I mean, look at, back in chapter 1, look at verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. Stop right there for just a moment. The crucified Christ was a stumbling block to the Jews. As verse 23 says, They would have accepted a deliverer on a white horse coming to liberate them from the bondage of Rome. But a crucified Messiah was not in their concept of who the coming prince was to be. They somehow missed the elements of suffering that were connected with the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. They were looking for only a national deliverer who would set them up as kings of the earth. They did not grasp the spiritual qualifications 
that were pre- prerequisite to that. The Greeks, on the other hand, were intoxicated with fine words and mental chess games. Verse 22 says, Greeks search for wisdom. They loved spending hours discussing and debating the trivial, hair-splitting minutiae of human philosophy. So in light of this, what did Paul give them? Did he go out and do a survey and find out what they liked or tailor his message to their preferences? No. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Listen, you don't give people what they want or what they think they need. You give them Christ crucified. You give them what they really need, the message of the gospel. Look at verses 24 and 25. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The only message a Christian has to proclaim is the message of the cross. Of God the Son becoming man, of His dying to pay the penalty for our sins, of His being raised from the dead in order to secure our eternal life. That is the message that we must be proclaiming. Thirdly, note the paradox of God's wisdom. Look with me at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Paul's saying, consider how God saved you. The word calling there is referring to salvation. So, Consider, was your salvation based on your intelligence or was it based on your position in society or was it based on your wealth? No, none of that. You see, this world measures worth by those kinds of standards, but God does not. In fact, God delights in using little things and saving those who are often deemed by the world as outcasts and uh, those who are cast aside. He delights in taking nobodies and making them into somebodies. And we tend to take things like intelligence, wealth, prestige, and position and place them at the top of the priority list. But God puts those things at the bottom. You see, God's choices are different from ours. I mean, look with me at verses 27 and 28. We didn't read this a while ago, but look at that. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. The word despised in verse 28 means to be considered as nothing. The phrase, things are not, that are not, is one of the most contemptible phrases in the Greek language. Because the concept of being was so central to that language. 
So this is really saying that these Christians were seen as so low in society, it was like they didn't even exist. And the truth of the matter is, most of the early Christians were seen as the scum of the earth. They were the world's outcasts. And yet, these were the ones that God used to turn the world upside down with the gospel. And by the way, that ought to say volumes to us about what God can do with little, little things. And we often tend to think that we can't make much of an impact because we're so small in number, or we have very little in terms of this world's wealth. But God can still do mighty things through us. Well, we've got to move on. Fourthly, we see the purpose of God's wisdom. Look with me at verses 29 and 30. That no man should boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and Redemption. Listen, no man can ever boast before God. Anything and everything that we have and anything and everything that we are is all by His grace. And yet, by His grace, we are now in Christ. And because of that, we have now been given four special gifts from God. First of all, we have God's wisdom. Not only are we saved by God's wisdom rather than our own, but we are also given God's wisdom to replace our own. Listen, men are not saved by their intelligence or by their their accomplishments or by any human wisdom. We're saved by the foolishness of God, by the message of the cross, by believing in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. Secondly, we've been given righteousness. Romans 4, 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. God made him who knew no sin, that is Christ, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thirdly, we as believers receive God's sanctification. In Christ we are set apart. We're made holy by His grace. Sanctification is a present positional truth as well as a process of practical holiness. And as we mature spiritually, the frequency of sin in our lives should be decreasing. That's not to say that we become perfect or that we cease to sin but it means that we're given life in the spirit and we're to begin to walk in the spirit and we're to bear the fruit of the spirit and we're to be transformed into the image of christ and then fourth we receive god's redemption and that means we've been bought back from the power and bondage of sin and because of all that And all that is given to us by God, we have no room for boasting. It's all of God. It's all His work. As verse 31 says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. But there's one last thing that we see in this passage of Scripture, and that is the proclamation 
of God's wisdom. This theme is carried into the second chapter. So look at it with me. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That must be our message. This is what Paul came to these Corinthians with. It is the same message that we must proclaim today. We must not replace it with words of human wisdom. We must not try to come up with some kind of superiority of speech. We must proclaim instead the testimony of God. And we must not proclaim anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But we'll pick it up here next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the challenge that we see in this passage of Scripture. Lord, help us to be faithful to that. Help us to be a church that holds high the cross of Christ, that we would uh, not dilute the message of the Gospel in any way by adding human wisdom to it. The Lord, help us to stick with the unadulterated, pure gospel that is given to us in your word. So, Lord, help us as we seek to be a church that is pleasing in your sight. Help us to do all you desire for us to do. And help us this week that we would live for you and be a witness for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.